Uh, just, I'll give you a little, uh, a little taste of the Sabbaths coming up because we have some really neat things coming. Next Sabbath, uh, the staff from Glacier View uh, will be with us for church. So they're getting ready to go uh, for their season at camp. And they're going to come down and join us for the worship service. And, and Brandon Westgate, the leader, uh, the conference youth leader, will be our speaker. And, and uh, we'll be hosting them next week. So there'll be a big crowd of them here with us next Sabbath. And then, uh, let's see, this is 10. Then 17th, that's 17th. 24th, I'll be here. I'll be speaking the 24th and July 1st. But then I go out of town and will be gone on July 8th. But this is no reason for sorrow. In fact, this is reason for elation because Vanessa has agreed to be our speaker that day. So you will definitely want to be here that Sabbath. And then I'm back for the 15th, but then I'm also gone the 22nd and the 29th of July. But we have the 22nd covered because Tony Hunter is going to be our speaker on the 22nd. So you have these things to look forward to greatly in the days ahead. Um, and uh, I hope whatever your summer schedule is like, that whether you're here or not, you'll be able to tune in uh, online and keep up with, uh, with the different ones and what's going on. So I'm really looking forward to what Vanessa and Tony has for us next month. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day, for the opportunity of this time, for this place, for your word for your love, so many things for one another. <clears throat> Lord, I pray now that your spirit will be with us. You will, you will speak to our hearts. We will hear in this what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been kind of doing a little series here for a little while, uh, at least the Sabbaths that I'm speaking. King in the book of Luke and, and kind of taking a slow walk through some of the early sections, and really, and for all of this so far, we've only been in Luke 4 and Luke 5, uh, just kind of taking it a story at a time, and we're going to do this whenever I speak throughout the summer until next fall, and we'll start something more intentional in the fall uh, on, on another theme, but, but for now, we'll do this slow walk, and we may come back to it again sometime, so, so the general question organizing this this sort of uh, open-ended series is, what do you believe about Jesus? And so we're looking and asking that question in each of these stories as we go along and, and slowly picking our way through this early part of the book of Luke. And we've gotten some interesting answers so far from, from what Jesus is really like. <clears throat> and sometimes those answers were well received by the people, but sometimes they didn't love the answer. And you recall that's how the whole series started. We were talking about the story of Jesus when he goes to Nazareth, and he's, he's there, and he gets up in the synagogue, and he speaks, and they like what he's saying at first, but by the end of it, they want to throw him off the cliff. And it seems as though his great offense is that he likes the Gentiles a little too much. I mean, that's the best we can get out of what we're given in the words that he said that day. He seems to be saying, no, no, I'm also here for the good of the Gentiles. 
Now, we love those words because guess what we are? Most of us, Gentiles. There may be a couple of you out here that have some sort of Jewish heritage, but most of us are Gentiles. And we are added into the covenant. We are added into the promise. And these are wonderful words for us, but they were not for the people at the time. And that's a challenge for us because sometimes we want to get exclusive and say Jesus belongs to us, not to you. We have to fight that. <clears throat> Another thing we discovered in, this, in these stories is that as much as there is often confusion among humans as to who Jesus is and what they believe about him, there is apparently no confusion on the part of the demons. Because everywhere Jesus goes in this story, where he encounters a demon, the demon immediately says, I know who you are. All the people are like, who's this guy? But the demons are not unclear. They know exactly who Jesus is. And they know exactly what he can do. And they do exactly what he tells them. So that's kind of a troubling reality, isn't it? To think demons know who Jesus is better than we do. I don't want that to be true. There's another thing we learned. Fish seem to obey Jesus. Now, I go fishing sometimes. Fish do not obey me. In fact, they're very good at avoiding me. But they do what Jesus says. Jesus says, stay out of the net all night, but then swim into it during the day. You see, Peter goes out again because Jesus says, go throw your net again. And he says, well, you know, we didn't catch anything all night, but all right, whatever. They throw the net, they catch all the fish. The fish do what Jesus says. And another thing we learn from that story is even if Jesus tells you to do something that seems kind of crazy, go ahead and do it because throwing a net out during the day seemed crazy to Peter. But it was through that that Jesus accomplished transformation in Peter's life. So we really should do what Jesus says. His word should be followed and obeyed. And he rightly has authority to both command us and direct us because we benefit every time we do what he says. He doesn't command us for fun. He doesn't command us because he doesn't like us. If he gives us a command, it's because if we will obey it, it will be for our good. So I, I noticed today that uh, when Nerman and Tony came in, that Amron was walking. I guess she's 14 months now, and so yeah, obviously. But, but walking around, and, and I was talking with Tony a little bit, and says, isn't it fun when they have mobility but not wisdom? Things in the house start going on higher and higher shelves. See, this is, the re this is our reality. We have the ability to make decisions and do things, and Jesus gives us that ability. But if we're not smart enough to listen to him, we can literally hurt ourselves. That's your concern with Amron, that she's going to hurt herself on something. That's Jesus' concern for us. That's why he gives us commands. That's why he gives us directions we also learned that disease obeys Jesus he tells it to go and it goes and we also learned that 
the rules with Jesus were a little bit different because you see with other humans if they came into contact with someone with leprosy then that person became unclean because they touched an unclean person but with Jesus it's different Jesus touches an unclean person and Jesus doesn't become unclean he makes the unclean clean so disease can't stand in his presence darkness can't stand in his presence defilement can't remain in his presence he transforms everything so we're gonna jump into another story today and if you're paying attention during the children's story you've got a massive head start but we're gonna jump into another story today and once again Jesus is going to stress the good people now I put quotes on that not because I'm saying they really weren't or they didn't want to be or they were just terrible in disguise maybe some of them were but but I put it that way because their response to Jesus is not what it needs to be because their response comes from what they believe about Jesus so again I put it in front of you what do you believe about Jesus and how did you get those beliefs we go to Luke chapter 5 and we're going to begin in verse 17 on one of those days as Jesus was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal this is a fascinating little introduction that sets the stage to this story and there are there are facts here that are very relevant to what's about to take place so it would seem that Jesus is in some sort of a setting with important people now if you look at this in uh, there's there's parallels in Matthew and in Mark you'll get some details there that suggest he was in a house so we're gonna go with that idea that he's in a house and in this house apparently it was a sizable room there are a number of religious leaders gathered and they have gathered from Galilee but also from Judea and also from Jerusalem so this is an important crowd and they are in the house and the house is full and there really isn't any room for unimportant people you know how that goes sometimes now it's not wrong in and of itself that they would gather in this setting because it seems like they have come to learn and find out about Jesus but here's the problem it's one thing to be in the right room at the right time it's another thing to have ears that can actually hear what's being said do you remember how Jesus will go to this phrase every now and then he who has an ear let him hear and the implication of this saying is that if we really are paying attention and our hearts are open to the Holy Spirit that hearing truth will bring conviction in our hearts but if we are set against what Jesus is about if if what we believe about him is fundamentally flawed then we can hear that word but it doesn't transform us in fact sometimes it makes us want to throw him off the cliff so that's the first part of this but now there's a line at the end of this that's fascinating 
And we're not going to take a long time on this, but did you notice this line? It said, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This is a fascinating statement. And I wish I knew exactly what it meant. But let me kind of try to get at what I think is happening here. Now we know that Jesus, in our understanding of him, had within him the capacity to heal. However, it seems, or at least this is how it seems to me, you can decide if you agree with this or not, that because of Jesus' purpose to come and be one of us and live as one of us, that primarily when he was healing, he was not healing with his innate power, he was healing with the power of God. Well, why would he do that? Well, here's, here's how it makes sense to my mind. He would do it that way because that's the way we need to do things. Now, he did have it within himself, but he was purposely not laying hold of that part of his own divinity for the sake of truly living our reality. And so when it says, and, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal, what I hear in that was the, the Spirit of God was present in that moment in a way where he could have had granted healing through God's power to anyone in the room that believed. Now, I think there were times, actually in the story of Jesus, where he did heal from his own power. But I think those times were actually more accidental than intentional. What am I talking about? Well, I think the best example of it is the woman that slips up behind him with such faith in him and touches his garment and is healed. He says, I felt power go out from me. She laid hold of the power of Jesus through faith. So I think there were times when it happened. But I think in general, he was healing with the power of the Holy Spirit that continues to be available to us even in this day. So you can wrestle with that in your own mind and how that makes sense to you. I'm not telling you this is exactly how it is, but I am telling you this is how I understand it and this is how it makes sense to me, this line, that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. But let's go on. Uh, verse 18, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. All right. You need friends like this in your life. You need friends who care so much about you that first of all, they'll go out of their way to carry you across town on a stretcher. And when they get there and can't get in, don't just say, oh man, sorry bro, too crowded. Well, maybe next time. No. We're so committed to you that they go up on the roof and tear a hole and lower you down so that you can be in front of Jesus. You need friends like this. I tell a story in, in the book uh, that I wrote called The Ten. I tell a story of a time I went skiing. And uh, 
I was thinking I was a pretty decent skier and I was going to do really well and I was skiing with with a family and they had children younger and I thought this will be no problem but it turns out they were all actually a little better than me and they took me on some hills that that okay maybe in my prime I could have done really well but I was really pushing my luck and I was going harder than I should have and my equipment was older in those days and and anyway I'm going down the hill and and I caught finally I caught the edge of one of my skis on a on a mogul there and just over the top you've had the experience if you've skied lost both of the skis they're way back lost both of the poles they're scattered around I wasn't wearing a helmet in those days that explains some stuff now but uh, hat came off I mean just all over the hillside and I'm laying down there on my face but it just so happened there was a, a a lovely 12-year-old girl by the name of Lachelle who was skiing behind me and she began to very dutifully pick up all of my equipment off of the hill and brought it down to me and set my skis in order and helped me get turned around helped me get my hat back on my head and I got my skis back on and I'm ready to go and she said something in that moment that I wanted to be offended at what she said is, Pastor Jeff, I will ski behind you in case you fall again. And my pride wanted to say, no, I need no help. But my wisdom said, yes, you do. You need friends like this. See, we need people like that in our life. And this man had friends. Not only do we need friends like that, we need to be friends like that. Willing to go that extra mile for someone we love. Look what happens in this next verse, verse 20. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Whose faith did Jesus see? See, this is an interesting point. They lowered the man down before Jesus, and, and it says when Jesus saw their faith, he told that guy his sins are forgiven. Isn't that interesting? So it raises this question. Can your intercession, whether it be active or passive, help someone you love because it seems that perhaps Jesus sometimes will count your faith in place of theirs? See, we don't know for sure exactly what was in the mind of the guy that was there. We're not told in the passage. But Jesus saw their faith and gave the reward to the man. Is that how intercession works? Now, there's actually a lengthy discussion and, and section on this in the book Desire of Ages, and it starts around page 267, a chapter called Thou Canst Make Me Clean, where Ellen White goes into a lot of details in this story, and some of those you shared with us in, in the context here, and you will, you will get some interesting context on the individual and, and, and some, of the, uh, some of those who are in the room. None of that is technically in any of the places where this appears in the gospel. You know, I encourage you to look at that because it's fascinating to read 
But for what we're going to do today, we'll just stick with what we could get out of Luke 5 or Matthew 9 or Mark 2. But let me say this. It does seem reasonable to discern from the story as we're given it that the paralyzed man did indeed feel great guilt and condemnation. Otherwise, Jesus' words to him would have been pretty strange, right? If he perceived himself as, as not one in great need of forgiveness of sins, and his friends had lowered him down, and all he was thinking about was, Jesus, can I be healed? Then you can imagine in his mind when Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven, he'd be like, yeah, I know, but can we get on with the healing part? So the simple fact that the story transpires the way that it does does in fact suggest that the man had two great needs. One was the obvious physical healing, but apparently there was also a very deep spiritual need to which the words, your sins are forgiven, were the words he needed most to hear. So I'm going to assume that even more than the healing, the man longed for the words, your sins are forgiven you. And to that point, let me ask you, do you long to hear those words spoken to you? Your sins are forgiven you. Now, I'm going to assume that the man was not suffering from false guilt. Sometimes we get caught in, in cycles of false guilt. There really isn't anything there, but, but we're just caught in this false guilt. I'm going to assume that his guilt is real. And I'm also going to assume that you probably haven't done anything worse than he probably did. So can you believe that if you were to come to Jesus for repentance, or even if you couldn't bring yourself to Jesus, if other people brought you to Jesus upon the stretcher of their faith, do you believe Jesus could forgive you? Do you believe that? Regardless of whether these words, your sins are forgiven, were welcome to the man on the stretcher, they were certainly unwelcome to everyone else in the room. Verse 21, and the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here's the thing. They are correct in their premise. Only God can forgive sins. So what does their charging Jesus with blasphemy say about what they believe about Jesus? You know, that's our organizing question here. What do you believe about Jesus? They know only God can forgive sins, so they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. So what does that say about what they believe about Jesus? Well, first of all, they know Jesus is a man. But at this point, they don't know that Jesus is God in the sense of the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in fairness to the men in the room, because they were probably mostly men, in fairness to the men in the room, 
Has a man ever been God before? I mean, really. In fairness to them, that was a pretty provocative statement. So maybe we don't beat the Pharisees up for their faulty initial conclusion. But it is their refusal to see and to hear and to learn that condemns them in the end. And, and you know I have to ask it. Is that the same way for us? Our refusal to see and hear and learn. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? In my opinion, this is one of the very best questions that Jesus asks in all the Bible. In fact, one of the best questions in all the Bible as a whole. Why do I feel like it's so good? Well, here's why I love this question so much. Nobody sitting in that room can do either of those things. So Jesus says, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, for everybody in the room, both of those are impossible. So it's not just which is easier. They're just both not possible. But there was one person in the room who could actually do both things. And one person in the room who knew which was easier. But we'll do more on that in a moment. Verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And what was the effect in the room? Verse 26, an amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So at the end of this experience, what the Pharisees and teachers of the law thought that Jesus could do regarding forgiving sins is not actually clear. Probably not just to us, but to them as well. We don't know what they were thinking, and I'll bet they weren't sure what they were thinking either at that point. But there was at least no doubt on one point, and that was... Jesus could tell a paralyzed man to walk. That was clear. Whether or not Jesus could tell him his sins were forgiven, still possibly of an open question. But there was no doubt he could tell him to walk and the man would walk. So, let's take this on. Which is easier to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? For us today... In one sense, it's actually easier for us in the exact opposite way of what is easier for Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. If one of you were to come to me and say, I have repented of my sins to Jesus, I can very easily tell you, friend, your sins are forgiven. 
Not, of course, because I can forgive your sins, but because I know 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and I'll bet you do too, and it goes like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, I know this verse, and I can quote it to you with confidence, and I do so happily today because I know it's true. So if you come to me and say, I've confessed my sins to Jesus, have I been forgiven? I can say to you, friend, your sins are forgiven. But it's not because I did it. It's because I know this verse, and I believe it. However, if you were to come to me today on a stretcher, paralyzed, I can pray for you for healing, but I cannot guarantee it will happen right now the same way I can guarantee your sins will be forgiven right now if you confess them. So in this, in this sense, if you came to me on a stretcher, for me to say walk is harder than for me to say your sins are forgiven. Now, but you understand, I'd, I wouldn't actually be doing either of those. But I can guarantee you the one will happen, even if I can't guarantee you the other. But let's go back to the room that day when Jesus asked the question. Verse 23, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So on that day, for the Pharisees and the teachers, both of those things were impossible. They could not tell the man to get up and go home, and they could not forgive his sins. But what was the situation for Jesus? It seems that for Jesus, to heal was a very small thing. All it required in that season was that one believed Jesus could and would heal. And even then, sometimes, Jesus even healed when the best a person could muster was, I believe, help my unbelief. So in that season, where the Son of Man was being revealed, healing was a central part of the experience. And it seems it was not difficult for Jesus at all. But let's consider the other thing. What did it take for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven you? When you see it, you realize that in that moment, Jesus was committing himself totally to the road of suffering and death, which was the purpose for which he came. You see, for the forgiveness of sin, Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again. 
to heal. All he had to do was be there. But to forgive sins, he had to walk the road. And in that moment, you can almost hear a certain irony in Jesus' question, can't you? Which is easier to say? Healing didn't and wouldn't cost Jesus anything. But coming to secure forgiveness for the sins of the world would cost his life. Healing was just a matter of releasing the power of the Lord to heal. But forgiving sins was a promise that would hurt Jesus on a very deep level. I think it's pretty easy to see which was easier to say. Even though probably no one in the room that day understood. But I think you can also see that in the context of the life of the eternal kingdom of God, which of those statements is more important? Yeah, the man was healed from his paralysis. But this was not the final and ultimate healing that takes place when Jesus comes again. That man's not still alive somewhere. If he was, we would know. But his sins are forgiven. And because of that, at the resurrection, he will rise again. I want to invite the band to come back up. I guess it's the... the, the duet to come back up. I don't know. The band is two this time. but And I'm going to ask you the question again. What do you believe about Jesus? Because it will affect the way you read these stories. The Pharisees on that day believed that Jesus was a blasphemer. Or at least they did until he healed the man. What they believed after that, I don't know. It doesn't say. But the truth is, I'm not worried about them today. My concern is you. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe he is both healer and savior? And to that end, I want to ask you this question. What do you need most today? Healing? or saving. I can't give you either. But Jesus has promised you both. As we go into our time of song and worship, the first song we're going to do here is, is called Be Near. And it very perfectly captures this reality of this need of Jesus. And and the reason that the friends brought him and set him at Jesus' feet. He needed to be near Jesus. And I, I think we need to be near Jesus as well. Whether it's for healing or for forgiveness. We sing a lot of songs here. And we're blessed by the work of a lot of different people who compose these songs and put them together. But one of the special things about this song is the person who composed this song is actually here today. Because Elijah wrote this song. And so as we 
as we close out this part and enter into these, these songs, I want to give him a chance to speak to you about the opportunity in this song as we sing and experience this to receive both healing and salvation.